Donald Trump called him tough. Rush Limbaugh read one of his articles live on his radio show. Ann Coulter tweeted that article to her one and a half million followers and declared, every sentence is perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, former chief editor of the Jewish Press, Elliot Resnick. Welcome to the Elliot Resnick Show, where we interview fighters and firebrands on the political and cultural battlefields. The current state of American education can perhaps be summed up by a comment made by Newt Gingrich around a decade ago. He said we now have, quote, a whole school of education theory that you don't have to learn. You have to learn about how you would learn so that when you finish learning about how you learn, you have self-esteem because you're told you have self-esteem even if you can't read the word self-esteem, end quote. In other words, kids don't learn very much nowadays. Creative writing has replaced grammatical rigor, journaling has replaced acquiring beautiful penmanship, and engaging in group discussions has replaced reading great works of literature. I'm exaggerating, but only a little bit. Our guest today, Jeremy Tate, hopes to change all this. He is a champion of classical education, which sometimes is defined as the pursuit of the true, the beautiful, and the good. And to advance classical education, he has devised CLT, which stands for Classic Learning Test, which is now used by many private schools as an alternative to the SAT. Jeremy, welcome to the program. Hey, Ellie. Uh, grateful to be here. Great to have you. Okay. On your website, you write something that I think is a really great introduction to this interview and to what you mean in general when you call for a return to classical education. It's a couple of paragraphs long. I'm sorry to take so much time, but I think it's really worthwhile for me to read them. So here it goes. You write, in 2013, I was teaching evening high school to 11th grade students who had failed their English classes. These were students who had experienced years of boredom in school, and I was supposed to reteach the same material that had failed to gain their attention the first time. Looking through the textbook, I flipped through page after page of fragmented passages, meaningless activities, and bland stories that had no chance of rousing these kids from their indifference. So I did something radical. I chucked it. Then I sat the students down and made a deal with them. No homework, no tests, no quizzes, no busy work, and no textbook. I then spent my own money on copies of Flannery O'Connor's short stories. The game plan for class would be simple. Each evening, we would form a circle, read out loud, and stop to discuss when anyone felt the urge. It was the most successful semester I ever had. Students that were previously checked out became obsessed with the shocking nature of O'Connor's writing. These were students who had gone through an education system that neglected any consideration of religion, philosophy, ethics, or the nature of good and evil. They were starving for truth, and O'Connor finally gave them a taste. This amazing experience helped me to form a vision for CLT. The work we are doing puts the very best texts in front of students. When you remove every transcendental idea from education, students are right to be bored out of their minds. Give them something that deserves their attention, and they will respond. It's human nature. End quote. Okay. So is this what you mean when you talk about a classic education? It is. And Elliot, thanks for sharing that story. I mean, that was one of the sweetest memories I had teaching students. And modern education, modern K-12 education is completely disconnected from what we did, especially in the West, for more than a millennia. And the goal of education is the thing that has changed. Uh, going back to the book of Deuteronomy, going back to the Old Testament, the goal of education was fundamentally uh, about shaping the human character, the human heart, the affections, cultivating virtue. It was not college and career readiness, which is kind of the mantra of mainstream K-12. And I, I think it's dehumanizing, uh, you know, to, to not be presenting them 
with the same questions about good and evil, about what is human happiness that so many previous generations were given if they were lucky to get a good education. So practically speaking, what does classic education mean? It means you read more of the classic books. So kind of break it down into detail, if you would. Sure. The first part is, again, the, the telos, you know, or the goal, uh, and the goal of, of classical education being fundamentally the cultivation of virtue, or you could just say good character development, that being the goal, rather than college and career readiness. And that's a really key distinction, because if the goal is college and career readiness, quickly, you know, schools will leave out the things that students won't use. For example, if the school says students shouldn't learn anything that they're not going to use, well, they're going to get rid of poetry. They're going to get rid of a probably serious art program. They're going to get rid of philosophy. They're going to get rid of classical literature. When are they going to use classical literature? And so once you lose that telos of education as something that shapes young people in all the right ways, once you lose that, then the curriculum starts to change dramatically. And you get a curriculum with very utilitarian aims of giving kids the skills, is what they like to say, that they're going to need to be successful what you really end up with is a generation of kids that's completely checked out. They're completely bored. You know, it's content that fails to capture the moral imagination in any kind of serious way. You know, Elliot, I remember when I was teaching, I was always very interested in this. Even the kids who were the most checked out, the kid who's just bored with everything and like you can't engage that kid, you start talking to them about the atrocities uh, of the Holocaust or some other great evil in the 20th century. And suddenly they're listening. This question of what is human nature? What is the human capacity for both good and evil? Young people are very interested in these questions. These are the timeless questions that really drove the origins, the foundation of education, right? If we go back, not just to the Old Testament, but to Plato and Aristotle, it was these kind of questions that were at the center that now have been kicked out completely. Just to play devil's advocate a little bit, if you're just talking about virtue, and I, I know you I think you're a religious Catholic, I'm a religious Orthodox Jew, so our own religions teach us about good and evil. Why is it necessary to supplement that with Plato, Aristotle, and other great works of literature? That's a great question. Uh, I think a question, you know, what, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? A question that's been debated, you know, for, for a long time. And I, I think in some ways, a thoughtfulness in terms of raising the right questions, but also making the case that these are, are universal. The case for classical education, you know, is not that it's some kind of like Trumpy right wing alternative to left-wing progressive education. The case is that it's universal because it's, it's an education fundamentally in what it means to be fully human, right? And so the questions that even came before, uh, you know, as a case, I, I'm a Catholic, that came before the Christian tradition, and in some ways that were articulated differently. You think about Aristotle and his focus on virtue as being a balance, a medium, you know, of extremes. I think for students to understand the nature of virtue, its connection to human happiness and the good life, it is part of being human. You cannot be in this world and not interested in what it means to be happy. And happiness is completely connected to virtue. And so what I have found so amazing, Elliot, about this whole classical education phenomenon, it's, I mean, it's phenomenon, it's growing everywhere, is that young people are so engaged with it. They're so engaged with these kinds of texts and these kinds of questions. You first came to my attention, I think, when you tweeted a picture of an absolutely gorgeous old building and said it's worth preserving the civilization that produced such a building. 
More recently, you tweeted a picture of a majestic church alongside the following comment by, I think, a colleague of yours. Quote, why can't we build what they built? Because we don't believe what they believed. It's not an issue of technical ability. Most of my listeners are Orthodox Jews. So instead of old churches, let me talk about, for example, Grand Central Station in New York or the New York Public Library on Fifth Avenue. There is something inspiring about these buildings. Architects can build impressive buildings today, but they are almost never glorious or majestic or awe-inspiring. You walk into the main reading room of the New York Public Library, and you almost immediately want to be part of something greater. You want to be better educated. You want to be more well-read. The room itself has this effect on you. We don't build such buildings today, though, anymore. And according to your colleague, it's not because we lack the ability to build such buildings. It's because, again, quote, we don't believe what they believed. Explain if you would. Absolutely. And I'd ask your listeners as we're chatting here to maybe, you know, close your eyes or, or if you're driving, of course, don't do that. But, you know, think about a time that you were in a place that was truly beautiful, that you were in a place of grandeur and what does that do on the spirit? What does that do to the soul, right? You look at the great libraries of the old world. The libraries were amazing. The architecture was intended to inspire wonder and curiosity, right? You look at a modern library in a K-12 school, uh, and it is depressing. All it inspires is a desire to quickly exit the library and to, to not have to be there anymore. And look, you had for millennia philosophy and religion you know, theology was a queen of the sciences in the medieval university. And that commitment, giving theology that place of supremacy, it profoundly impacted the architecture of the medieval university. We look at Oxford or the University of Paris or Cambridge, uh, and they were built in a way that reflected the academic priorities of the university itself. People go now, you know, it's interesting that the modern soul is this very conflicted person where in many ways, Every modern person is enamored with what the old world built because we're made for beauty. We're enamored. The number of Facebook and Twitter accounts that do nothing but post pictures of what the old world built is insane. It's like if you want to get a whole bunch of engagement on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, just post pictures of old libraries and old cathedrals because the modern person is starving for this because it's been kind of ripped away from us. And so this, again... It appeals, you, you can't argue with transcendental beauty. It's too intuitive. You know that there is something there that is deeply connected to the most fundamental aspect of what makes us different from animals, all right? As far as we know, and I, I, I think we kind of do know, the cows and the chickens and the sheep, right? They're not sitting there in awe of works of art or of buildings, or even of sunsets in the natural world. This is a part that is distinctly connected to what it means to be human. And I once had a sociology professor. He was an Orthodox Jew, so he had decent values, thank God. And he was telling us that he saw the same absence in, and everyone does, I'm sure, but he sort of nailed it down, in modern music and modern art. He said the form is all there. They know how to do harmonies. You know, the ancient division between form and material. Um, in, in Hebrew, it's Homer and Surah. I think it comes from Aristotle. So we have the form nailed down. But we have we don't have the material left. We're so vacuous. We have nothing to fill it with. So that's why you have modern music. They play around with with the forms, but there's it doesn't sound nice at the end of the day. And modern art doesn't look nice at the end of the day because perhaps they just simply lack inside their soul. There's nothing for them to share really, and that comes out in their music and art. Sure. And Elliot, I'd recommend to your audience Alan Bloom's The Closing of the American Mind, uh, 1986. I've read it a couple times just in the past few years, but he focuses extensively on music. And essentially, this is connected to this shift in education, where for millennia, education was deeply concerned 
about cultivating the appetites, the affections. You know, the, the goal of the teacher was to help the student come to love what they ought to love and to hate what they ought to hate. Um, and, and so I'd recommend Alan Bloom there for sure. I read it around 15 years ago. If I remember correctly, I think he writes that one of the points of, I guess, music education or something of that nature in the olden times was to match the emotions with the intellect. So you could run wild with music or you could have it, you know, be logical, which is more classical music. You're not just beating drums and just expressing your emotions. You're also doing it in a logical way. So therefore you're taming your emotions in a certain degree, if I recall correctly. Yeah, the shift, you know, Alan Bloom starts teaching in the late 40s and goes to the late 80s. And essentially, if you think about what happened in music during that time period, you know, the late 40s is, you know, this is before the rock revolution, before even, you know, Elvis Presley or the Beatles or any of this. And students were very much, they're listening to music in the home. And it was so classical music, which again, has this impact on the soul, on character, on temperament. And that is replaced by the more kind of base desire appeal of rock music in the 60s or 70s, but it, it impacts, you know, the whole person, who somebody is at a very profound level. You had another quote here from Heinrich Heine, which I thought was also great. He said, people in those old times had convictions. We moderns only have opinions, and it needs more than a mere opinion to erect a Gothic cathedral. I saw that on Twitter the other day. I'm a big, big fan of a, a book called Orthodoxy, G.K. Chesterton in, in 1908. And it's probably the most profound, insightful commentary on, I, I think, the entire modern world. But he makes this point about kind of modern man that he has confidence in the things he ought not to have confidence in, namely himself. And he has no confidence in the thing he ought to have confidence in, which is his dogma, what he believes in, right? The old man in the old world had confidence in God uh, and little confidence in himself or abilities. And we've exactly reversed that in the modern world. How do we go back to there? Because in the postmodern world, the idea is we don't really know anything. You know, we believe in the brain, we believe in the human spirit, but we don't really know anything. We can't know if anything is true. And therefore, man is not confident anymore. How do you regain that confidence in the old tradition? I think it's happening right now. We're living through it. We're seeing a massive, massive exodus from public schools, New York City public schools, Los Angeles County public schools. And we're seeing an incredible renaissance right now of classical education, of homeschooling, religious schools, Jewish schools, Catholic schools are suddenly growing once again in enrollment. And in some ways, you know, I think that the secular education project uh, went kind of full course to its end, where even the idea that we can know anything about anything becomes, and at the end of the day, that's not very attractive, right? To spend 12 years K-12, another 10 years in you know, undergrad and graduate in a doctoral program, to come to this grand conclusion that you can't actually know anything is basically, it's anti-education, it's anti-intellectual at the end of the day. And this is where I think there's finally, finally a renaissance of intellectualism in some ways on the the more conservative side that understands that we have to ground our beliefs in the transcendent in God ultimately. You partially just answered my question with the last few words you said, but how do you answer that critique that at the end of the day we can't know anything about anything? You know, maybe we're all just in some sort of matrix or simulation. How do you answer that? I think I'd go back to Chesterton here in the book Orthodoxy, uh, where he lays out he's actually writing Orthodoxy as a follow up to uh, the book Heretics. In the book Heretics, he is kind of taking apart the components of the modern worldview that are doubting everything about everything and kind of showing that essentially you're killing the ability to have kind of knowledge itself. 
We're seeing this, Elliot, on a very practical level right now, as we're seeing for the first time since the end of World War II, a downturn in enrollment at many, many mainstream universities and, and also many smaller you know, brick and mortar liberal arts colleges. And at the same time, we're seeing an explosion in enrollment at places like Hillsdale College, St. John's College in Annapolis, which is a great books college. Uh, you know, Thomas Aquinas College, which is a Catholic great books college. So the market is in some ways kind of responding right now to where there is substance and where there is not substance. And schools are, are starting to see this in their enrollment, that students want to go somewhere where they're going to be given the genuine article, the kind of education that was the norm for a millennia. Right. And I think it probably all boils down to what you said towards the end of your previous answer, which is, if you do believe in God, and there's a very great case to make for belief in God, then I think everything else is much more grounded. Without God, I think it is harder to ground certain things. I mean, you do have this idea of natural law, that the natural world and the conscience tells you certain truths, but I do think it's probably much easier to ground many truths if you have God as your rock, as your center. Yeah, and at the end of the day, and I think this is kind of building on Lewis, you know, C.S. Lewis, but without God, it is a blind act of faith that in any way language would come to correspond to reality. Uh, there has to be some ground. On the theme of beauty, which we were talking about before, you wrote, penmanship matters because beauty matters. Not only is it great for fine motor skills, it also teaches students to communicate with eloquence and detail. I was wondering if you could elaborate on that because many people today think penmanship is irrelevant in this computer age. Yeah, and Elliot, I, I'm going to be honest with you. My penmanship isn't great. And I remember this. You know, I, I struggled as a young boy, six, seven years old, to write well in terms of penmanship. And I remember a teacher saying, you know, when you grow up, it's not going to matter because everything's going to be typed anyway. And I thought, you know, 30 years later, as I was writing a handwritten letter in the early days of CLT to a potential investor, I thought, man, was she wrong? Here's the most important thing I've ever done in my professional life, writing this handwritten letter. Um, yeah, uh, many things happen. You know, penmanship, it's being revived in these new classical schools. But for a lot of schools, they don't write hardly anything anywhere, right? They're on a tablet system. They're on a one-to-one -one where every student's got some kind of a device that they're using. And what happens in terms of memorization? What happens in terms of learning? What happens in terms of the writing process? You know, something is lost. And, you know, you think about the connection to character and to virtue. It's very rare that you meet someone who has beautiful penmanship and in the rest of the life, they're just a hot mess disaster. They're just a sloppy person. Typically, these things are connected. Someone who writes beautifully, clearly with eloquence, that that carries over. And so when we talk of education as like character forming, as soul forming, as cultivating virtue, something like penmanship is a great example where when a young person is kind of required to go through the painstaking work of mastering penmanship, uh, right with that comes a lot of self-discipline as well. And then with that kind of self-discipline comes, and I think that's one of the paradoxes of, of classical education. We're reading as a company right now, Aristotle's Ethics. There's this paradox with discipline and human freedom and that it's the self-controlled person, not the person who is a slave to their appetites to or their impulses that experiences real human freedom. You see that with this kind of an example with penmanship. A student masters this painstakingly as they're a young child, and then they're free. They're free as an adult to communicate with grace and with eloquence. 
there's a classic Jewish teaching, which I did not appreciate at all as a kid, but as an adult, I appreciate it so much. In the Bible, it says that the Ten Commandments were engraved on the stone. In Hebrew, the word is charos. And the ancient rabbi said, well, charos is related to cheros, which is the Hebrew word for freedom. And it said, through the law, you gain freedom. And as a kid, I'm like, what does that mean? Because, like, you know, as a kid, freedom means going to recess. And as an adult, you appreciate that so much. No, the law frees you. Like you said, without the law, you're a slave to your passions, to your vices. And the law actually frees you. It disciplines you. And I think it's a very profound teaching. Amen. Yeah. Okay. You have something called the CRT. Class. Well, I forgot what it's called now. The classic. CLT. CLT. Learn. It's not the same as, as SAT. How is it different? Why do you devise it? Why is this important? Sure. Yeah, Elliot, uh, the classic learning test, it's an alternative to the SAT and ACT that I, I launched with it with the team in 2015. And I, I always start off this part saying, hey, you know, this may sound very boring. We're suddenly talking about standardized testing. Who cares about standardized testing, right? Well, standardized testing has a tremendously powerful influence on mainstream American education. And essentially, and this is one of the few concepts that I think almost every teacher agrees on, is that for better or worse, the test is gonna end up driving the curriculum to some degree. And here's what I mean. If students know that on the most important test they ever take, they're gonna be reading, let's say, passages from the great scholar Origen, or maybe they're gonna be reading from Tertullian or St. Augustine, or let's say uh, in the modern world, Alan Bloom, right? You know, some of these great, intellects. That's going to fundamentally change what they're doing in the classroom as well. If students know, if parents know that on the most important test they ever take, there's going to be the most important works of philosophy, of religion, of classical literature, then that is going to translate to a renewed and a refined focus on these great texts in the classroom as well. So that's the reason we launched. Practically, everybody's used to the 1600 score, The CLT is a shorter test. Instead of sitting there for four or five hours reading really meaningless passages, it's two hours. They get the results back much faster. It's online uh, and it's it's 120 points. Top score is 120 all the way down to zero versus this range of of 400 to 1600 on the SAT. So more than 200 colleges right now uh, have changed their admission standards to accept this as an option. And the number right now is growing uh, almost every day. And I noticed you wrote in an article or someone else wrote that the SAT is actually not what you or I remembered it from school. Not at all. The only thing that is that has stayed the same about the SAT, I took it in 1999. The only thing that has stayed the same is the name. That's it. And it's still in English. Excuse me. It's still in English, right? But this this used to be an aptitude test. There used to be analogies on the SAT, logic questions on the SAT. All of that is gone. And it is very, very ideological. I, two years ago, students are reading Bernie Sanders on the SAT. They don't even try to be centrist. The college board who owns the SAT, and everybody knew, and everybody was fine with it. Everybody knew the college board was left of center. But over the past 10 or 15 years, they went kind of ideologically insane and just pushing a very clear, far, far left of center agenda. Uh, and people have woken up to it and they're not happy about it. Uh, and I think that's why the classic learning test as an alternative has become so popular so quickly. I've been wondering now for the last few months why there's not aren't more Hillsdale colleges in the country and why conservatives are not focusing on that at all. But thanks to your Twitter feed, I've now discovered that there might be another route, which is Governor DeSantis seems to be trying to 
take over and co-opt and reform the existing Florida State University system. I was wondering if you could talk to me a bit about that. Sure. I'm thrilled with what's happened down in New College and, and a lot of the, the folks on the board there. Look, for my entire life, I was born in 1981. Everybody always knew that Democrats were in control of education and people were generally okay with that. And I think it was tasteful in a center left kind of way. And I think increasingly, especially colleges right now, have gone really ideological in the sense of making this kind of new progressive orthodoxy kind of a litmus test for not just teaching there, but increasingly even enrollment as well. Right now, a great book that I would recommend to your audience is called The Coddling of the American Mind. So this is Jonathan Haidt book. Very, very, very important work. Part of the case that they're making is that there's no viewpoint diversity at so many college campuses. Right now for psychology nationwide, for every 17 professors that identify as liberal, only one identifies as conservative. So for many students, they go all the way through a four-year degree without really seeing any or hearing any viewpoint diversity at all. That's not education. That's indoctrination. We've talked a lot about classic education, but sometimes people just, they need very specific. So just think what they teach today and what a classic education school does differently. So there's two things. In addition to this focus on the cultivation of virtue and character development, there's also what we call the canon or the great books. And so the idea for generations that somebody could be a really educated person without reading any Homer, without reading any Plato, without reading any Aristotle, without reading any Dante or Thomas Aquinas, it, it was unheard of. It was unheard of. And so in some ways, the classical movement is a very humble movement and saying, you know what? In our present moment that we happen to be occupying, we can't go back and rewrite all of history. In some ways, we need to defer. This is what Chesterton refers to the democracy of the dead is tradition. We need to defer to tradition and say, what did every other generation consider of quality? And, you know, this question, Elliot, of like, what makes a classic a classic is a really interesting question, right? Take just, for example, the the references everybody knows about. A a story like, uh, let's say, Cinderella. We don't even really know how old Cinderella is. It's at least a thousand years old. It could be even a little more than 2000 years old. A similar story seems to have a, a bunch of different origin spots. But what we do know is that every generation for millennia, they told this story to their kids. And it was a story that every single generation believed was worthy of passing down to the next generation. That in some ways is how a classic becomes a classic because it speaks so powerfully into the most basic things for what it means to be human that it becomes timeless. Cinderella is going to be popular in 500 years if humans are still occupying the planet and doing well at that point in time, as will Beauty and the Beast, as will these stories, again, that are truly timeless. I think that's a big part of what they're doing at classical schools is that students graduate now from these schools and they've had a deep dive into into Dante into Homer. They've read the Iliad. They've read the Odyssey. They've talked about these books. They've been in conversations with others who built off of them and built off of them and built off of them. That's the primary differentiator here. Last question. If someone wants to learn more about you, about the classic education movement, where should he go? What should he do? My Twitter handle is at Jeremy Tate 41. Uh, Again, at Jeremy Tate 41. Our website is cltexam.com. More than 200 colleges already accept the CLT, and many that don't officially accept it, even schools, you know, MIT, Princeton, Harvard, students already 
send their scores there even as a supplemental. Let's say elementary school. Someone is a parent wants to get his school to be more classically inclined. Is there any like major website that he should go to for more information or, or material? You know, one of them, if you just Google the Society for Classical Learning is going to be a great, great reference for you on that as well. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on the show today. It's been a, a delight chatting with you. All right. That does it for us. I'll have links in the episode description to some of the books that our guest has mentioned. If you like the show, please consider following it or subscribing to it, depending on what platform you're using. Please also consider leaving a nice review. If you want to receive my weekly, sometimes bi-weekly email, you can email me at editor at 1vs450.com. Again, that's editor at 1vs450.com. Have a great day or a great night, depending on when you're listening to this episode.